Welcome, everybody, to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelicone. And we are joined by our first returning guest tonight, our friend Aiden Boyer. Hello. And tonight we are going to be talking about Spike Lee movies. And the point of this third man series is ultimately our guest and Frank will each have their own movie that they feel is most representative, the best of, uh, of the director, in this case, Spike Lee. So we'll get to those movies, but before we get started, traditionally we end up talking about other movies in the filmography of that artist. Uh, before we get started tonight, I wanted to ask each of you both your familiarity and also your uh, level of respect in terms of artistry for the director. And Aiden, I'll start with you as like, you know, what, what was your first experience as a Spike Lee as a director? And then how do you feel about his career overall? The first time that I even heard of Spike Lee was during the time it was in the cable days where like the, so I'll say like early nineties. And I remember he had one of the first movies that one, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to see because of the content. And two, it was a a recent movie or like a contemporary movie that was black and white. It was um she she's got to have it, which I've only seen half of it, but I had to see it as an adult because of the mature subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, the I would say it's probably it's hard because it was a long time ago. I would say probably do the right thing. I remember like because uh, Public Enemy had a, was a, was very well represented on the soundtrack and they were popular when I was in high school. So. That would probably be my guess, um, but he was like a P is not not was. I mean, he very much is a very popular icon, and for good reason. Um, and I think he kind of was the mark of quality, particularly black quality in film for a very long time. He was the only act in town, mm-hmm. but I thought he was really talented. I feel that he still is really talented. Um, so that that's probably what I bet. As a personality, how do you feel about him? Uh, he, very entertaining. Um, he balanced the line of being comedic, but not, uh, coonish, I guess. Um, and being intellectual, at least when I was in high school, um, and like message driven without being like overly preachy. Uh, a lot of, I have a lot of memories of him in his commercials, as Mars Blackman for, uh, I guess it was sneakers. I can't remember. Was it Jordan's? Um, But he, you know, he was kind of like, he was, he was, he was an icon. He was almost like a, like a, not a soupy sales. Who's the other dude? Like a Dick Van Dyke kind of, but for black folk, for us at least anyway. Dick Van Dyke is no icon to me. I'm just going to put that out there. I couldn't think of I couldn't I can't think of someone comparable. Jerry Seinfeld, I guess maybe. Uh, okay. He just was everywhere. I just yeah. remember him being everywhere, and there wasn't like he was outside of a channel. Like court courtside at Knicks games and. Well, that was no. I mean, when I when I was in high school, I don't. Remember. Oh right, You're I'm right. saying like when he when I was in high school, I, he was he was always. It's like it took a while for you to realize Spike Lee was Mars Blackman, you know, like because and then he would be appear in his movies and like. You know, and then like, as a kid, you get partial exposure to. Right. So, um, you know, you never. It's like he he was he was very he was just everywhere. I just remember him being everywhere, and not in a bad way. He was just very funny. You know, 
Frank, what's your first so, memories, and then how do you feel about him overall? Aiden already kind of referred to it, but Mars Blackman is my first real exposure to Spike Lee. Um, my first like film exposure to him is Do the Right Thing when I was maybe 14 or 15. I saw that. So it's 80. Oh, okay. Well, oh, the movie is um, 89. 89, but you know, I saw it when I was in like or like high school, mid high school. Mm-hmm. Um, as an artist, I think. It's interesting that you talk about how respected he is, because I kind of think of Spike Lee as being a sort of, like, unfairly... What's the word I'm looking for? I don't think that he necessarily gets the respect he deserves for being a filmmaker with his, like, length of tenure. And, I mean, he's made, like, close to 30 movies, I think. And you think about, like, contemporaneous filmmakers to him. So you think about people like... Scorsese and like Tarantino and these people that you think of as like the great film directors, you know, that like late eighties through the nineties. And I don't know that most people would put Spike Lee in that category, but I think like he certainly has some misses right in his Mm -hmm. filmography, but his hits are amazing. Like some really fantastic movies that he's made and definitely a really talented filmmaker with like an amazing eye for, framing and shot composition and the way he moves his camera and the way he establishes shots is just really brilliant and i don't know that like i mean if you can use the term underrated for somebody that's made that many movies i think maybe in like the grand scheme i think he's underrated as a well, filmmaker. i'll give you some really poor research to support your point which is that i started looking just on google i just typed in best american directors and they give you like photos and I like pulled it down and I had to go about 30 images deep to find Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. And then I went to ranker.com and I he's in the 60s for best director, best current directors okay. like that are currently operating. And which is absurd to have to go down to 60 to find right. Spike mm-hmm. Lee. Uh, so I, I do think there is a sense that, yes, he's not given the amount of respect, maybe, as especially as a director that he deserves. Because, like you said, in terms of, like, his cinematography and all those kind of things, he's one of the best out there. Like, rewatching these movies, like, really solidified his position to me as a director. Is like, Yeah, he's operating at times on the level of those people right. that are held up in the upper echelon of directors. My feeling is that he's probably underrated in some degree because of historically the types of movies that he makes, which is about black people. Right. Uh, well, and, 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 and he's and, not given that respect. Now, of course, he has that period in his career where he branches out into more mainstream stuff. But right. but his his, the, his formative years, like the years you really think about, I mean, it really is about the black experience in a lot of ways. And yeah, things that you wouldn't necessarily see in mainstream movies you know, because a lot of times, like, black characters were used as, like, comic relief in movies. So to have movies that were focused on, I mean, honestly, as a kid that grew up in, like, a rural part of, you know, Maryland with very few black people that, like, attended our schools and little exposure, I honestly think I learned a lot about actual, like, black culture from watching Spike Lee movies. And maybe not in a way, like, the idea of, like, 40 Acres and a Mule mm-hmm. comes, like, I know about that like I looked into it because of Spike Lee mm-hmm. and there, I felt that 
again, like as a kid that had like not as much like cultural exposure beyond like other white people, you know, there's a certain like watching do the right thing. I think sort of like opened my eyes to the fact that there are, I don't know, like other experiences other than just what I went through as a kid. Mm. Cause you know, seeing it when you're like, whatever, like pretty young, I, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I think he's a really important filmmaker in the sense that he focuses on things that not a lot of other filmmakers did. And I think he opened the doors, you know, for stuff like, I don't know. I mean, I almost said Players Club, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. <laughs> but like... No, I agree with that. I mean, there's there's a large chunk of movies like Friday and... Um, like Tyler, even the Tyler Perry movies. Right. And like Sprung, I'm... Um, mm. I don't know, just all these movies that I think were able to be made because he showed that a black filmmaker can make movies that can be successful and have, you know, merit to them. But yeah, if he's like ranked that low, I mean, I don't know. I'm not surprised. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that it, I'm actually surprised that it wasn't further down because I think that when you, when you look at something like that, let's just assume like, I mean, it's not like definitely quantifiable research, but like, let's just assume that you look on the internet and it's like, uh, like all peoples or let's just make it just American, right? Mm-hmm. Just national. So we'll say like, and, and we'll just say that all the racial contexts are nullified. So that everyone gets to vote. It's like more democratic. Um, then yeah, I don't think he's going to rank that high, but like he represented a lot of, uh, of, he had a lot of, uh, he was the only he was the only act in town, like you know, like right. so he had a lot of black support, sure. which sounds weird to say, but you know, so like, but on the opposite side of that too, not not to cut yeah. you off, I think when you look at critical reaction to his movies that are not necessarily good, right, or mm-hmm. movies that are like panned or people don't like, I think there's almost like a glee to critics when he makes a movie that doesn't live up to the standards of his earlier movies. Like, I remember reading reviews of um, She Hate Me when it came out. Right. And people, like, destroyed that movie and hated it. And it felt like, you know, like, you watch Seven Years in Tibet to bring up Scorsese again, which is not a good movie. Mm -hmm. But it's like a blip, you know, and, like, nobody even, like, talks about it really. Whereas with Spike Lee, I think when he makes a movie that isn't the best, I think that, like, critics especially are really, I don't know, like... My knee-jerk reaction to that is that those critics were soured when he it was soured with the the combination of the of his material being like like ethnocentric to a degree and the fact that it was popular and he was doing right. well so i mean it doesn't surprise me like he didn't he didn't achieve like uh, a more universal critical acclaim because of it and critics ultimately a lot of times represent the establishment right. and he is very controversial when it comes oh, very much to so. the establishment right. and he's very threatening to them to some degree because of the attitude that he takes and he's is strong and doesn't back down right. and speaks his mind and they certainly a lot of times I don't think like that I um I had a really like very specific experience with Spike Lee my freshman year in college um I took a I think it was called Introduction to Film or something. Mm-hmm. And it was basically, you know, like a semester class and you watched a movie every week and then you would discuss the movie. Um, and I honestly remember like three movies we watched and we saw Apocalypse Now, 
Um, we watched Rear Window. We watched uh, Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. And it was all all white people. Mm-hmm. And the reaction to Do the Right Thing was so universally negative by the majority of that class. Like people that were legitimately angry at the professor for making us watch it. Right. And for something that I honestly think is like one of the more important American films of the past 30 years. 30, what year is this? Yeah, 30. Right. Um, it's, it's surprising that people can't be more open-minded about that. And I think that represents a lot of like why, you know, I think that in the long run, and maybe it will take after like, you know, his passing whenever that happens. I think people will look back and see somebody that was, you know, a risk taker and an innovator and somebody that really explored like, you know, parts of the human experience that nobody else was necessarily exploring. I think that a lot of it, a good deal of it too, is because you and I've seen it before, and I've seen this dynamic before with other, with other uh, elements of entertainment, be it dance, music, uh, just orators, whatever. You know, like break dance. Like people thought that it was a bunch of monkeys like spinning on their head, and a lot of people didn't understand it. And I think that people that can't relate to something that's so wildfire spread and so popular that they have it's like that's they can't they don't it's like they don't either either don't understand it or it's not parallel with them or a combination of the two or whatever whatever the composite is right it's like it seems to me that it's it's a the path of least resistance to hate it because you know there's this thing that everyone is doing and it goes against like the current like status quo Mm -hmm. so I feel like a lot of a lot of I feel like he fits into that as well because like a lot of stuff that he goes through and a lot of the um a lot of the underratedness and importance is very based on what you're using as a societal context because like you know you can pull someone from like our era and you could say that chuck d from public enemy is one of the most influential musicians of all time but if you say that at like yale <laughs> do you know what i mean like they're gonna be like who was chuck d you know type deal so i think that uh, you can't. I don't think you can evaluate his work without, especially like his earlier works. I don't think that you can evaluate that in a in a in a way where you can't look at the societal context. I mean, I agree with that, but I think that a lot of people are still uncomfortable with looking at that societal context. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they, they definitely are. I will say though, knowing the college population that you're talking about, twenty to twenty five years later. If that movie were shown in a film class today, that sentiment would still be there in some people probably, but it would be a largely different reaction in 2019. So it it has changed um, that population, even Mm. in this area, um, pretty radically. And they might still not like it, but I don't think it would always be for the same reasons. Um, I'm not even saying that there was any... I mean, I'm sure there was some racial component to it, but... (laughs) I think it was just because it's it's a loud movie and it's a audacious movie and it's not about something that like we experience in right. you know suburban or rural America right it's like a completely different experience and I think to some people it's just not interesting to learn about that yeah no absolutely I, right. I even though in that level of openness though I do even think that's changed some and the idea of at least be willing to be exposed to something that's but different. also because it's been commercialized you know to your point you brought up breakdancing you think of something like um 
what are those movies like save the last dance and stomp mm-hmm. the yard the, and the whatnot dance movies. right like where they where you've taken something that was like an underground phenomena and like commercialized it and compartmentalized it to the point where like anybody can go and see it and be like oh well you know that's i want to go see that dance movie because it's fun to watch and mm. it ultimately becomes um almost disposable like pop culture at that point whereas i think when spike lee not spike lee made dance movies but like when he's making his movies it's more like urgent and like immediate mm-hmm. into like problems and situations of like that era mm-hmm. and i think that he's really good at pointing that stuff out and like to your point you know chris i think that he's not afraid to make a statement and stand by the statement even if the majority of like critics or whatever you know aren't interested in hearing the statement he has to make i think i think also like the change of the racial climate over the last i mean i'm 44 so i'll say like from when i've from my high school my like late you know elementary school like seventh eighth grade to now even i think that it's interesting to see the differences in my feelings and other feelings other people's feelings with regard to spike lee because when like when i was in high school like he you know he addressed a lot of questions and uh that that were very relevant and at that time people were people on a general scale were working out their stuff and 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 not necessarily i mean it was contentious you know like i remember you know so you have you have like race wars they have social race wars within the races against the races there's all this because before they were quarantined, like it was kind of like I don't say it was accepted, but like you knew, like like my grandparents went through a time where they could get hosed, you know what I mean, or, or they may right. have seen like a colored sign or whatever. Um, my parents were a little after that, obviously, and then like I didn't see that, but I still saw tension, you know, and those barriers were breaking down, but they were contentious both within the respective like social groups and like inter inter and intra. So, like, you know, Spike Lee doing all these movies that dealt with that, like, really helped them get through it to be where we're at today. Because it's definitely not the same. And those are, like, there's two interesting points in what you just said that I think are really important. And the first is that, I mean, when I was a kid, like, I've seen cross burnings, I've seen clan marches, like, in my lifetime. Which you think of those things and you think of them as being, like, you know, pre-civil rights era. But especially in this part. You know, we, we do live in a rural area where there's not as much exposure to different races. Like, it still is kind of a prevalent, even if there's, like, it's more of an undertone now, it still exists. And I think it's interesting, too, that you think about, like, black cinema from the late 80s and early 90s. And you think about Colors and Boys in the Hood and Menace mm-hmm. to Society. And, um, you know, I, I really think that Spike Lee showed like a more complete human side to the black experience where it's more about like questions of, you know, going to college and being successful and trying to keep the nuclear family together and like, you know, like divisive environments where there's like outside influences. And you and I are both going to talk about movies tonight where he touches on some things that I think are really relevant and not in a way that's like, you know, glamorized to like the gang warfare, which I think draws mm. people in just from the the titillation of people with guns and dealing drugs, but like right. actual questions that I think are important, you know, questions societally mm-hmm. that he asks that aren't necessarily flashy, but are still important. And right. I don't know. I mean, 
I'm not kind of guilty of this too. Like every time I think about Spike Lee, he's really is one of my favorite directors of the past 30 years. I mean, I have a lot of respect for him and mm-hmm. I think I enjoy his movies more than I think he has like failures in filmmaking, even though there are some pretty bad movies in his catalog filmography. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Um, yeah. But I don't know. He's again, I think he's another person that once he's gone, like once he stops making movies, I think there will be a lot of, like retrospective on how important he was and people will really start to appreciate just how much he paved the way for legitimate like black filmmaking in this country beyond just being about the worst elements of society. I, but I, right. But I think it's a shame that it, that won't happen until it's posthumous. And, I, yeah, I think no, that's, and that's, that's what that's, I was going to say. It's going to be a shame, but I think Frank's exactly right though. Like, yeah, no, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, without him, it's like you don't have Black Panther getting nominated for an Oscar. And right. I'm not sure how I feel about that to some degree, but <laughs> right. you don't have I mean, that without Spike it. Lee. <laughs> That's a whole like, other discussion. Right. Um <clears throat> And but like other things too, like um Twelve Years a Slave and Hotel Rwanda. I mean, there's plenty of stuff where I, I I was thinking about this today and I feel bad. Like I was trying to think of black filmmakers prior to Spike Lee, and I really couldn't come up with many. I mean, they're all kind of. I mean, it's prior to Spike Lee. Um, I guess it, w- would that be the black split? Because I don't even know. I mean, I, the ones that I think of are lumped at the same time, like John Singleton, right? Yeah. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. I mean, but the, the handful of the, of the the ones that I know, they're around the same time. You know, but those were talented filmmakers that were forced into making exploitation movies, and maybe they wanted to make them. I don't know, but I mean, right. that's how they could make movies because that's what people assumed that like producers assumed that people wanted to see was right. you know i mean you think about like sydney poitier like sticks out as like an anomaly almost for decades right as being in like quote-unquote like legitimate like american cinema mm-hmm. um whereas like i think spike lee opened it up where anything i mean so there's even like a touch of I don't know if racism is the right word, but like racial profiling in in the movie industry, like in the exhibition industry, mm-hmm. in the sense that when a movie by a black director with a predominantly black cast would come out, mm-hmm. it would always release on a Wednesday night. Like they would never release like a movie that appealed to like like the black population on a Friday with the rest of the movies. It would okay. always be a Wednesday release, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But it kind of like segregated those movies out from the rest right. of the films, almost okay. Like we're just gonna like dispose of this on a Wednesday night and right. not have to deal with it with the rest of like the quote unquote like normal movies. It's like a chore, right? And now you know you have plenty of movies that come out that are like about like by black directors and black filmmakers and with black actors that are just as I think appreciated as whatever I, I think it's become more mainstream and i think he has a lot to do with that mm-hmm. i mean just the fact that um he's the he between him like i said john singleton like that you know that graduating class or freshman class if you will you know that was the first time that i think that a lot of i don't know about i can't speak for my parents but but for among my peers it was the first time that we even noticed the director right uh, you know, because and we didn't even know that that's what it was. It was like, oh, this is a Spike Lee film. Like we in 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 you know, in early age, it was like you you don't know what the role is. You just know that he it's his movie. So he we didn't make a distinction between who wrote it, directed, screenplay, all that stuff. It was just like he owned this movie. So I think having that kind of 
um, like elementary and limited view, like helped him in a way because he gets credit for roles that he may not have done. Right. In that regard, you know. Do you also think, because I was, when when you were talking earlier, I was trying to think about this. Like, when I think about my, like as a kid, like my impression of even like black actors in movies. You think about stuff like 48 Hours and I don't know, like 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 Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. And like those right. were the predominant like black actors in the 1980s. Okay. And I think, again, like I think that Spike Lee changed it where... You don't have to be the fool, mm-hmm. you know, to be black and in a movie, like, or the villain or whatever. Like, you can be, like, you can have, like, Denzel Washington can just be in a movie and be a phenomenal actor. And it doesn't have to be just because he's black or he's playing, like... Or a comedian. Right. 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 I mean, they were, they, were, they were the first movies that I saw that were relatable both in age and race to me. You're talking about, like, those... Like Richard Pryor, no, no, no. I mean, like, do the right thing. Oh, right, like that kind of stuff. Like, well, I remember specifically, like, you wanted me to watch School Days. You right, and School Days were a little later, though. It's a little like, later, yeah. But, but like the like you know the Spike Lee and the John Singleton movies, and then there are certain movies that are that I grew up with that I felt connected to racially, and in a pop culture sense, like divorcing, like decoupling the two. So like I you know so I I'm an 80s baby cuz I was born in mid 70s, right? So I can identify with Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer and right. like those movies because they're kind of even though they may not take place in high school but they they echo the high school spirit like as far as youth is concerned. But then when you look at like when you combine the the racial social component to it, like I don't, you know, that's not there. I like, you know, it's popular to me because of my age, but like when you start looking at like boys in the hood, juice was another one. Um, you know, those types of movies, they, it felt without, I mean, there's no other way to say it. It felt like it was more in my yard rather than me going out to Mm -hmm. like outside of my yard. Like this was, like, a, like almost like for like for us by us kind of type type mm-hmm. deal with that, and that, even though that sounds corny as all get out, um, like you know it just it just felt home. Whereas it, like it felt like it was like a home game <laughs> as opposed to away game. Right. Even though you love the sport, like it doesn't really doesn't matter. Good movie is a good movie, but it you know it definitely helps to remember and develop feelings for, um, like those movies in specific. Why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about School Days, just in terms of what that movie means to you and why you relate to it so much? So School Days, did you? Did you? You did. I see, watched it. You did see it. Yes. Did you see School Days? I have seen it in the past. Okay. Um. So School Days to me, it was a microcosm of what I what I was about to go to because when I saw School Days, if I remember correctly, I was either it was right before I went to college. Or right in the beginning when I was at college, um, and they're just like you have the the same feelings like you know that you would imagine you're going from being like a big fish in a small pond to being a small fish in a bigger pond, right? And then you're combining that with a whole bunch of other things going on, and there were a lot of 
there were a lot of motifs in school days that that put a voice on those types of frustrations and insecurities and stuff like that. And um, it just, it dealt with a lot for me. Um, it dealt with the question, it dealt with uh, the behavior of the, of the, the Greek fraternities and sororities or the, the panel or the whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, it dealt with how they're different than the non-black, <laughs> I guess, you know, um, Greek groups. It dealt with uh, going to, you know, a situation where you might deal with not being black enough or being too black. Mm-hmm. Um, so it dealt, it dealt with like inter, intra, I can't remember if it's intra or interracial, but like amongst blacks, like a lot of people don't understand. Like they think that, oh, you know, uh, like the whole racism bit is just like a white black you know, but there was a lot of I experienced. They, they don't understand that the darkness of skin color can be exactly. used inside the community right. itself. Not even the right. darkness, but like just your behavior alone. Mm. You know, and I had to deal with that because um, growing up, I had I straddled the fence between two very opposite uh, like living situations. Like I grew up partly in the suburbs of Delaware, and then I grew up partly in the not so affluent areas of Chester, Pennsylvania, and. You know, when you're in high school and college, you're very uh, you get overzealous and you and you become like you're romanticized with like ideals to a point where they're not applicable in a real sense. Right. And you know, I remember explaining to people because I got a lot of like you act white. You know what I mean? And in high school and in college, for that matter, I had very difficult situations socially where I had people telling me that I was too black for them or I was too white for them. And, you know, it was just, I mean, at home, there was, it was it was like a bad situation. And, you know, to see a movie that, that actually addresses that, like, I don't expect Scorsese to, to put a movie together that's going to be able to aptly say that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but School Days definitely dealt with it. In fact, they have a whole, there's a whole number about, because it's partly a musical. Mm-hmm. There's a musical number in it, I should say. And there's musical performances. I don't know if I would classify it as a musical, but there's a whole there's a whole musical number that deals with um, I forget what the I forget what the the lighter skinned affluent quote unquote pretty black girl group was called, but it was them and the Jigaboos, and they had this whole kind of like sharks versus jets. You talking about like the 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 gamma rays or whatever? The like gamma rays, but they had a name. They were the gamma rays, but I think there was a name for them too, but. It was the gamma rays versus the jigaboos, and that 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 was like a very real thing. And I think that it's like, I mean, I can't speak from, I can't speak from a racial context outside outside of who I am, but I can't imagine that somebody, I can't imagine a non-black seeing that and really understanding like how real that is, you know what I mean? And that's the kind of thing that makes me feel that movie more because it's like no one can tell that story other than somebody like in my camp. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because I've spent, you know, like the majority of my life now working in like warehouse environments like as a manager. Right. And you see a lot of that like interracial animosity, especially I mean from my experience between women. Mm-hmm. Um like there's lighter skinned girls that we I work with now that are not particularly fond of, like, the darker-skinned girl. We have, like, 
people from Trinidad that are darker skinned and there's like some tension between them and I mean maybe like you know we can't understand it from a certain perspective like from like an internal perspective but I think that I think School Days does a really good job of presenting like what what those tensions are and how like different groups of people in the same you know you look at like from an outside perspective like well it's just all black people but how there can be like the different Right. Like the stratification between, you know, the 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 gamma fraternity with what is that Giancarlo Esposito, right? Is the Yeah, uh right. G5G. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, like that's again, so when I say when I watched his movies, like when I watched Do the Right Thing, like it's more eye opening because you realize that there's things that exist beyond like a narrow perception of someone just based on their skin color. Right. That are more like there's broader issues and I don't know. I mean, I think that's really important. Yeah, and I think that <laughs> not just Spike Lee movies, but it's like dealt with. It, it was dealt with in uh, the show Homicide, the mm-hmm. episodes of that with Yafet um, Kato and mm-hmm. Audrey Brower talking about those type of things where I, I heard about these concepts of mm-hmm. racism inside of the community itself. Mm-hmm. And it seeing those things through art made me start paying attention to those things more and growing up in kind of a poor half black half white neighborhood I started paying attention to those things more and seeing how they actually then I was aware enough to be able to see how they played out and starting to realize that was a a real thing so let me let me ask this question because I actually wanted to bring this up at some point but I don't really know how to broach it Mm -hmm. So you look at like Spike Lee's entire filmography and especially like his earlier movies and it deals with the effects of drugs on the community. Mm-hmm. Um, like the perception of black people in society. Um, it deals with, again, like, you know, keeping a family together under like stressful conditions. Um, people who want to be part of like a street culture or maybe like should stay like there's so many things that are dealt with. Right. And you don't really hear much talk about that from the perspective of Spike Lee bringing those things up. But then I was thinking in the context of The Wire, right? Mm -hmm. Which also deals with a lot of those same things. Right. Which gets critical acclaim and is consistently rated one of the best shows of all time. And people always bring up how much, you know, how much light is shed on these different subjects. Right. Same exact subjects. Mm -hmm. But from a white producer, Mm -hmm. a white you know, like the guy that created the show is, and right. you know, no offense, like not to say that he doesn't have that perspective because you know he worked in Baltimore and right. knew Baltimore. But why is it that it's there's so much praise heaped on that, and yet you don't really hear much talk about like how much Spike Lee specifically brought a lot of those things to light. Because I think it's direction in, in so far as like who's giving the praise and like who and how it's just like the the kind of structure of it all. So like with the Spike Lee stuff, like amongst it was like like the Spike Lee movies amongst my peer groups were often talk about relived, reacted out in high school referenced in pop culture in in music and stuff like that i think that's where you that's you have to look it's a different it's a different currency you know like so the wire i was the wire was like the 90s right it was like late 90s early 2000s early 2000s 2000s. so like by then you figure from 
let's say 80, because I, I was in, I started high school in 88. So, the, I mean, there's like a good 10 years of of mo- of movies and media that deal with these themes. You right. know what I mean? So, like, by the time that, that The Wire comes out, the the audience is different, the structure is different, like, HBO is different. True. Do you know what I'm saying? So, like, uh, you know, people are watching television, they're starting to consume things different. We're at a different, you said late 90s, right? Early, early, early 2000s. Early, like 2000s. Early 2000s. 2002. So, I mean, as a as a people, I'm, you know, we're in a different spot. We just got past 2000. So, we just went through the Y2K thing. Right. You know, so I think that the, I think that it's really like apples and kumquats. Do you know what I'm saying? As far as. Both as, delicious. <laughs> as far as like why, you know, you, it's like you can't, you just can, can't compare the two. The, so, the, the so maybe this different. is a better question then. Why. Look at like the late eighties. So you have, she's got to have it. School days, do the right thing, move air blues, right? Like that's okay. Why is it easier for people to digest like different world, right? You talking about the Cosby? Yeah, spin-off? the spinoff. Okay, from school days. Even though, like, I don't. What do you mean? So it's a different world, or whatever the show is called. It's that's about right. like the black experience at college, right? Yes, but in like a palatable and easily digestible format. Yes. And school days is the same thing. It's the black experience at like a traditional black college, right? Like that's yes, whatever. I can't remember what school it takes place at, but at, at what school days? Yeah, Mission Mission College. Okay, so I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess maybe it's just because it's more. Well, well you're talking. You're, you're just. I think you just said it. It's it's more digestible, right? right. I mean, you're talking about sitcom Spike TV Lee versus is going into I think much harder, deeper issues where. Different world might do that during sweeps for a very special episode, right? And and, and still gloss it over. On top of it, you're also talking about a whole other that's on the heels of a whole other show that has right. that had, like changed the face of it because sure. like the Cosby's, the Cosby Show raised pretty much every black child in my age group, <laughs> like straight up, like you know, like that was. And I watched the Brady Bunch, and I love the Brady Bunch, but. You know, there's a part, despite despite the, you know, the current state of affairs with Bill Cosby and, right. like, you know, whatever, sure. whatever. Um, so, see, so, you know, we're all, like, we are all born in the 70s. Right. Did you watch Good Times and yes. um, What's Happening when you yes. were young? Um, more so What's Happening than Good Times. Good Times was, like, on, like, Good Times was, like, on the... Like I was, I wasn't old enough. Like it was on, but it wasn't old enough to figure out what was going on. Right. And it dealt with more serious issues that I didn't pick up on. I mean, for some reason, when I was a kid, Good Times was one of my favorite shows. Like I remember watching Good Times like every single day. I watched it, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see as many episodes, and I didn't, it, it didn't hit me in the same way. Yeah. That, like what's happening, Sanford and Son. Like I was, too, it was like I was too young. Like I knew, I identified the characters in the show. But I didn't know what was quite going on. I didn't understand it. Um, but like, what's happening? Um, like, definitely the Cosby Show. I'm trying to think what else is, was on back then. Um, that's my mama, right? You know, so like the Jeffersons, the Jefferson, right? The Jeffersons, like that type of stuff. Um, so that was the that that was there and was a part of like my television watching, but. There's a very, very large categorical difference and effect between 
like the Jeffersons and then like the Cosby show. Right. It's, it's almost like the Bulls. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The Chicago Bulls during the dynasty. I mean, and I just, I, there isn't, it's like one of those things that like, I feel like I can go up to any, I mean, I feel like I can go up to anybody in my age group and reference the Cosby show, but I can go up to, I feel like I can go up to any black person with that I feel is in my age range and make a completely specific Cosby reference and they'll get it. Like I'm talking deep reference, not like who played who their names or whatever, you know, like I feel like I could go up to like my sister and say like, do you know the right time? And she'll sing night and day, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of, that kind of thing. You could do that to like I, I'm just <laughs> you know, but I'm saying like it was, it was right, but it was that it was like it was almost like every black family. <laughs> you always made it to watch the Cosby Show. What was the name of the designer that Theo Gordon Gartrell? Right. Right. I love that episode. Right. You know. So I just. I mean, that was. I think like the, the the audience was thirsty for that. Like, and it wasn't, and and not in a destructive way where it didn't appreciate all the family shows up until that time, all the sitcoms for that time. Like Brady, and we, I love the Brady Bunch equal. Well, not going to say equally because it's, it's just different, you know? But, so do you think it was getting to see a black family in an affluent situation that... Um, It was, uh, in hindsight, yeah. I, but if you would ask me when, I, when it was going on, it wasn't something that I was picking up. I mean, because it really is just a great show. Like, it's really well done and there's a really good dynamic between the characters and... But the subject matter, so like, so this is what I was saying to it. So like, in hindsight, being 44, looking back like 20 years, whatever, um, it was, that definitely had a, 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 a definite, it definitely had an effect on um, the popularity of the show. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't been able to tell you at that time. Like, I, just, I would just say it was like a really good show. But what I can say in hindsight is that the situations that they dealt with are more real when I'm watching it. So like, uh, whereas you're, if you're watching, so like when I was watching, like that's my mama, Sanford and Son, the Jeffersons, uh, Good Times. It was a completely different decade right. to me, clothes wise, speech wise. In fact, it's like it was one of those things where like as soon as I, I didn't even have to know what show was on. Like I could watch the, I could see the quality of the camera work. And know, oh, this is good times. Oh, this is different strokes. Right. Oh, you know, it was almost like the same way when you watch television, you can tell it's a soap opera versus a sitcom Mm -hmm. without any type of dialogue or any any character. So, but with the Cosby show, it was more contemporary. So, like, you know, dealing with, like, this is, it was more real. Like, you know, you dealt with, I mean, like, the big topics were always dealt with in all the, all the previous shows, you know, um, but different, different world. Uh, the Cosby Show dealt with stuff that happened like last week. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, and it was just more relevant. It was contemporary. The timing was great, and which is not. I mean, it's a great show, but the timing, as far yeah. as like when it came out and when it was popular, and like, and you know, I'd already grown up. Grew, I'd already grew up with Bill Cosby for the Fat Albert. So like he was already kind of like an uncle figure at that right. point. I mean, because when you because as a one of the things that a lot of people, a lot of people that I think take for granted, it, it seems like a silly point, you know, when you talk about like, 
I mean, maybe not silly now, but, you know, like toys. So, like, my sister played with Barbies and stuff like that. You know, and <coughs> like, the Barbies did not match her skin color. You know, and she still played with the Barbies, though. But, you know, you, you just, you know, you play with toys and, and whatever, whatever. But it's different when you see it. You know what I'm saying? And um, it had a very pronoun- it had a very profound effect. He, he, he raised... Like, you know, like a very, very right. significant segment of the population at that time, no doubt. So I have one more Spike Lee question before mm-hmm. we go into the things. Um, do you think that Spike Lee can be, you can attribute, like, more acceptance to more, like, other than black directors, like minority directors and movies focused on minorities? He says, you like, that? you think about stuff like Mississippi Masala and mm-hmm. um, El Norte and... I don't know, there's just like all kinds of like early 90s and then up where you see a lot more movies about like non-white people that are focused on those cultures and focused on Mm -hmm. like ideas that come from those cultures gaining a lot more popular acceptance. And do you think that Spike Lee sort of helped like open the gates for those things to be possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he made made it, he made it so that not only could be talked about, but it could be done because the like kind of like the hidden secret, at least at that time, right? What you see in music too is it's like all these movies. People have a lot of great movie ideas, but they don't get done without money. And then like you know, blacks didn't blacks didn't have, I mean, minorities. It's not even just blacks, but you know, minorities didn't have the kind of resources to to put like big budget movie. You know, no one wanted to take a risk on that type of stuff. And also, and this is like. Mm-hmm. kind of like tangential i guess but it was sort of like what you were talking about like you talk about like the um, public enemy soundtrack and right do the right thing which is amazing right but also um like the soundtrack to school days with like the button or whatever right where it wasn't only part of a soundtrack of a movie but it was this like almost ubiquitous video for like a few weeks on right. mtv where he sort of not only had the subject matter of the film but kind of opened it up to the soundtrack basically so that right. you were seeing like on regular MTV like on the top 20 countdown there were things represented that came from these movies right. that are like him he's directly responsible for I maybe like pushing like rap and hip hop mm-hmm. more to the forefront of like absolutely people's consciousness mm-hmm. as like viable as opposed to just you know I think he really understood, and I don't, I mean, we, he's not here, so we, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but it, he's very, one of the things I really like about Spike Lee's direction, and I don't know whether if it's him or not, but I know that all, most of his movies have this component. I really like his composition of cinematography with music. Yeah. It's very distinguishable. And while as and I'm a big movie buff and I'm a big music buff and I have favorite movie composers but there aren't there are very few directors that I link with their use of music in a production if that makes it like I love no, Hans, I understand you know completely I mean? I mean I think Spike Lee is like almost the spiritual father to somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin Tarantino both of mm-hmm. whom I think are really I feel, I feel he's very much a a Tarantino-esque type yeah. personality. Yeah, like, like, talent, like what you just said, like, talented at linking the specific message of a song to the context of the scene that it's occurring in. And I think that he, I think that he knew, I would like to think that 
even early on, like he was very multimedia, you know, like right. as far as like industry too, like he right. was doing commercials. He was, he was everywhere. And I think that he knew that he knew his audience and, you know, it, it almost felt like it made, it made sense philosophically. It made sense in a marketing business way right. to give, not only are you giving people, you're giving a, you're giving a people of peoples a uh, experience that's native to them and, and and they're thirsty for it right and then and like to to be able to and and to be able to give them something to take home like as a souvenir that's what it felt like so like when you have like you were talking about like the butt with eu uh-huh. like okay here's here's this movie about black college life and etc and so forth and oh by the way here's a song that you're gonna rock in college uh do the right thing, you know, like here's this great movie about racial tensions in the city. Right. And oh, by the way, here's a hip hop song that you're going to hear, you know, and, and like yeah. seeing and it's like it's, you hear the song. It's very difficult to not hear Fight the Power and not. Right. Exactly. Of, right. Of And know, I and I think that like to your point, like in knowing his audience, I think he expanded who that audience was. Right. Because it feels so genuine and so immediate that like. As long as you're open to the idea of being affected by it, like it's very affecting to right, like hear that combination of music and. I think another thing about the music is, you also rarely hear people in movies talking about about black music, and in his movies you actually have conversations about those things that you see sometimes, mm-hmm. and so you have conversations about music and artistry in Crooklyn mm-hmm. you have you know Mo Better Blues you have the big, the first uh, two minutes of a Clockers mm-hmm. is a debate over whether you like positive rap or gangster rap basically in 1995 and, ha- and, and those drug dealers having that argument right. And I just don't think you see those conversations. You see them more now than you did. But at, back then, you did not see those conversations happen. And to add to that, ironically or coincidentally, whatever, which one applies, those conversations are by people that do the music. So like in Clockers, Sticky Fingers is, right, is, is, right, is right. one of the people that he's making those comments. Yeah. And um, I just watched Black Klansman and like Harry Belafonte's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, in Do the Right Thing, uh, Rosie Perez is you know was a very like musical person she's very much in the forefront um what I, the other thing that i also think is interesting especially about do the right thing is that and we're talking about hip-hop too is that he was kind of a dj of cinematography because a lot of people don't realize that he's actually sampling from other previous directors and like they don't even know it so like the beginning of do the right thing is actually a reference to bye bye birdie and you know like just countless that's the that's the one that i can think of most readily um but a lot of his a lot of his films had you know pay homage to you know him being a cinephile and him being a director and him loving movies but the context he he gives it it's it's like it's almost like it's a two-way street there's an exchange you know i always thought that was really one of the things that i really love about his movies. Okay. Um, well, we can see if there's anything later to talk about specifically, but let's mm-hmm. go ahead and actually jump into the actual two movies here. Okay. So, Aiden, you had Crooklyn. Yes. 1994. 
starring Delroy Lindo, Alfred Woodard, Zelda Harris, David Patrick Kelly, um, slew of his regulars popping right. up like regular actors and actresses. Right. Bless you. Thank you. And um, has a 75% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, has a 90% from audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you want to just go ahead and briefly tell us a little bit about what this movie is about and then what you like about it so much? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Crooklyn is about the short, it's a very easy premise. It's about a, a family in New York in the seventies, just trying to make it. I mean, that's pretty much it. There isn't really like a deep plot so far as complication or anything like that. It's really a family movie. Um, what I love about it is that it reminds me of the time of it's, it's, it reminds me of the youngest that I've ever been. And the good times and bad, but it was like, it's, it's more of like a nostalgia type movie for me, even though I didn't grow up in New York, Mm -hmm. even though it takes place at a time where I would have been one of the little kids at best. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are things that I remember through a very simplistic view, but um, both visually, literally and um, worldview, ideally wise, idealistically, I guess is the word. Um, like there are just there there are good times that you just can't describe with words other than simply like I remember watching the Jokers Wild at home with you know Wing Martindale or you know whatever or I remember being on the stoop and like playing you know kick the can or whatever whatever so it harkened so that movie reminds me it never lets me forget those times as I get older and I, I, and I appreciate it. I knew it immediately when I watched it and it was just the perfect, it was the perfect representation of my childhood and my past. And I, you know, it was very, it's very dear to me. It was the only movie that actually made me cry. Um, specifically at, at, at the passing of, uh, gotcha. Afri yes. Woodard. Right. Cause I didn't, I mean, Despite the fact, I mean, you know, while watching a lot of movies, you could see it coming. It still was a shock to me. But um, what I really like about it, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, but like, well, yeah, I mean, it's like, I, like watching when I saw it, I, it was I was much younger. Yeah. But like as an adult, I would have been able to see it a mile yeah, away. Right. Um, what I really loved about it though was that, and again, this kind of goes back to like the Cosby Show, and the Jeffersons and different strokes and that kind of stuff is that it was a very real movie. And it's one of the things I really like about his movies in particular is that it seems to me that he is very loose with the script and it's, it's more of a, here's, here's what I need to happen in this conversation. Here is here. There are the takeaways like, you know, start here and here, but I don't, it doesn't, it feels like a very loose script as far as, I think he, from what I understand, I think it depends on the movie, but he is more open to improv right. thing lines and especially things of just the, the way people naturally speak. So it right. even seems more realistic when he just lets people speak there, how they would normally do there, so. there are scenes in that movie that I live, no question, and not positively in a way. You know, like one of the, one of the scenes that stands out to me um, is the scene where uh, is a scene where uh, they 
the mother and the father go out. Alfie Woodard and, and Delroy Lindo go out. And now, and now I'm going to blank out because I'm going to forget. But they come back and the kids are supposed to clean up right. and all that stuff. And she just raises hell. Yeah. And it's almost like a one shot shot of like her going up and getting each kid. And each kid gets it. And you see, and it, and it just doesn't stop. They're in and, bed. It's like 3 a.m. They all went to sleep without exactly. doing it. And she's grabbing them up out of bed. And, and that's real. That is right. real. That is as real as it gets. And that's, that has happened in my household. And it, there's, it's not, it, it never felt staged or studioed up or like well-written. Like, cause that's not what happens. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And like the way that, um, the way that she speaks the way that she even talks about, she uses the N word in a negative fashion, but amongst black folk. And that's real, you know, mm-hmm. um, like the way she says certain things, how she can't go to the bathroom without having, you know, three kids hanging off her tits or something right, like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's real. Like there, there's no, there's no staging, you know, and you can't, for me at least, I can't have like that's a staple. Like that that happened like every Thursday where, where I grew up at. So it's it's really hard to to live through that and then see it on screen as real as it was in my living room. And uh, you know, and that movie throughout um dealt with the conflict, the joys, the pains. It dealt with the whole gamut of emotions with the same realism that I had when um you know, with my family. I mean, my mom's still alive. You know what I mean, but um, your mother also a teacher, right? My mom was also a teacher, which um, is same as right. My um, you know, and the, the same as Spike Lee, whose mother is actually a teacher, because that movie's to some small degree autobiographical, right? But you know, the same fights that they had about money, um, like you know, almost all that movie, I you know, it had some type of hand in or depicted some part of my life. And it was just, it was very real. So what are some of the uh, other scenes that stick out to you that, not necessarily that you, either that you relate to or that you just, or stick out in your mind because they're that good? Okay. Um, I, the end where she take, where, so um, eventually Alfie Border, the mother dies. And then Zelda Harris, Ladybug, eventually takes over as the matriarch of the family. Um that stood out to me because, uh, I mean, you got to see her, Zelda Harris, as a child, show like a very advanced level of acting mm-hmm. because she just looked. Because in in a way, it's I mean, not only is it a family movie, but it's also a coming of age movie too. Right. There's a lot of it's, it's very complicated, mm-hmm. and you see a palpable difference between like she's you know she's doing one of her little brother's hair who she fights with all the time but they put that to the side to to get this done and she's not the same person and she can't be the same person and she understands why um there was a scene where the where Alfie Woodard and um Delroy Lindo are fighting over the bank book right um, the financial concerns, like you know, if you write a check, make sure to put it in the ledger. Don't tell me how to control my money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like that was very. I, I, you know, I was, I, I've seen that fight <laughs> before. You know, up so close and personal. So I mean, it was just full of it. I mean, it was full of it. Uh, the the introduction of shoplifting to a child, uh, uh, adolescent kissing. 
mm-hmm. and like how do you steal away in the corner and you know that kind of thing and like the teasing and like uh maybe at last the she fought with her brothers all the time but the minute that it was an external force not necessarily outside the family but like if they considered you a stranger like you know only i'm about to hit i'm the only person that's allowed to hit my sister is me (laughs) you know what i mean like you can't put your hands on my sister so we could be in mid-fight and then if that happens then you you know and you see that amongst the kids so i mean it was just the the whole movie was chock full of stuff that i remember i i found watching it again i found it really interesting how i found a number of things really interesting about it but one of them is how quickly everything can just go to hell in terms of that household. Right. And how it's one little thing and suddenly it's chaos. Right. Where one kid gets set off for one thing and then suddenly everybody's fighting, everybody's arguing. And that felt, for children, that felt very realistic. Right. About the way things happen there. And I thought that was, I thought he captured that tone really well with children specifically. Right. And I thought all those child actors, which we'll talk about maybe that after mm-hmm. this, but it's like, I thought all those child actors did extremely Phenomenal. well. Phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. And so I thought that, what did you think about what one criticism mm-hmm. that comes up is that it, there's constantly music and it never stops and he has to fill the entire movie with music behind everything do you want to like speak to that criticism that's what happens <laughs> like, right. that's exactly okay. what happens that's that's what it's like um that's what it's like there was always music playing in my house uh you know and the thing is we didn't have a deep record collection or we didn't have a deep tape it was the same music over and over and over and over again particularly we, play, we hear i heard a lot of radio a lot of radio and um, especially in the holiday times, like the Christmas stations, like, you know, there are songs that I never listened to that are forever buried in my head. But even like, you know, even when the house, when everyone is going to sleep. And so this would be in, in Delaware, in the suburbs, you know, we would sleep upstairs and the, and the stereo would still be on downstairs through the night. And then and back at that time, radio, they weren't 24 seven, they signed off. But mm-hmm. it was it, our radio was constantly on. So you would say probably to someone that had that criticism, it was probably an artistic choice Absolutely. to make sure that music is always because even there's times where I notice that the music blares out the dialogue mm-hmm. in that movie at times. You do you can't actually hear completely what they're saying, right? Because the music's so loud and overpowering on it, and I feel that that's not a mistake of a director. I think no, I think that that's though. yeah. The, the specifically the the part where that I talked about earlier, where the, where she came, they came home, mm-hmm. and they're fighting, and then you hear uh, "Science Sealed and Delivered," mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. It's not so much the words, but you just like as soon as you hear that, you know it's on. Like <laughs> you know, right. you know someone's about to get it, and. I think that the, I think that the, the aural chaos is an artistic experience of like what it's like to be in a situation where you have multiple siblings and multiple persons that are all, everyone's yelling over each other, you know, in, in different ages and different genders and different roles and no one's hearing anybody. You know, the, the, the authoritarians are, are speaking over those that are being ruled over, you know, like it's just complete chaos. And if I remember correctly, and I've watched it a lot of times, but mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, I think 
once every once the situation is resolved and not necessarily resolved in a good way once it's resolved there's no music because that i think that's the fight where she ends they end first they're trying to discipline the kids and then the fight kind of moves throughout the house and delver lindo ends up putting his hands on alfrey woodard and pulling her down the steps and then she says, that's it. I want you out of my house. And then there's no music. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know. Do you think there's some correlation between the fact that he's a musician and the music itself? I'm sure. Um, sure. I mean, it all fits. You know, like, it all, it all, it all, it definitely all fits. Um, there's a lot. I, I think that, I think that the, the, the part that echoes more of the musician part in that movie was when he was talking about his music and like the artistic passion. And then we see the, uh, the way that he was uh, trying to build up the recital and you see nobody went through his recital like that, that echoed to me more of the music, the musician intent. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think it, that it, it didn't hurt <laughs> that he was a musician as well. How do you feel about that? roughly 20 minute sequence where she goes to Virginia because that's another mm. common complaint mm -hmm. and he ends up manipulating the screen so it looks like the formatting is off it's like it's like cinemascope or something like yeah that. and it that, keeps it like that while I she's love in it. Virginia the entire time I love it which I thought was funny because I had seen it before mm -hmm. and when it first happened, I was like, what the hell is going on? Oh, right. I forgot that he did that on purpose. Mm -hmm. I forgot even after because I haven't seen it in so long. Right. But apparently people were confused at the movie theaters all the time and had no idea what the hell no, was going I totally, on. I totally but understood. <laughs> for, there's two complaints about that. One is the use of that technique. Yeah. And then two, the other is that it feels like it goes on for too long with very little payoff in some ways to that subplot. Also... Yes, and it should be that way. <laughs> I agree. How so? Because so, I don't. I mean, like, I'm, I can't. I'm not going to speak for every black person, but I feel like every black person has a relative in the South, right? Like, we'll just say, like, con con um, conversationally, right? Mm -hmm. And there's almost always a time in the summer as a kid where you have to go away. You don't understand why. You just know, and it's 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 marketed to you by your parents as a fun thing, or like, oh, you're going to stay with aunt, uncle, whatever, whatever, right? And it's usually it's usually a like a living situation that is way different, like spectrally opposite of where you're from. And I and I and I went through that twice. Mm -hmm. I have relatives in Florida. And not in like Pensacola or Miami. They live in Quincy, which is off of Tallahassee, which is kind of like a black Mayberry. Um, right. <laughs> so, and I had a grandmother who lived in Pensgrove, New Jersey. And mm. outside of like, if, you, if you've ever been to Pensgrove, there's nothing there other than an IGA and a Cowtown. So, even straddling the fence between Chester, Pennsylvania, which was. You know, it wasn't an affluent, but there are people there and there are houses and there was activity. And even in and in the suburbs in Delaware, there was activity, and that's where we, you know, lived technically. 
you know, there was still, you know, it was more normal. But going to going like spending time there and then spending a night in Pensgrove, <laughs> like it's just there's nothing to do. Like you're making stuff up. Like there are switches that you can pull off that you get beat with. Mm-hmm. There's crab apples. You know, there's a there's always like a high school field that you wonder if it, the school is even active anymore. You know, and there is really a not there's really not a lot going on. So when you know the the not like staying in a situation where there's no payoff, that's what it felt like. You know, and it was just really so my parents could have like a couple time together. But like we never understood that as kids because we were too young. But, you know, that distortion, that visual distortion, everything like time seems to take a completely different take Mm -hmm. when you're there. You're out of your element. You're very uh, confused. You know, you want it to go away and eventually you adjust. So like I'd be I, I would like to go back and watch that scene and see if when they first get there it's at its extreme and then it, I wonder if the effect wanes out as she's there I don't believe it does you don't believe it does okay. no it changes they go back to Brook, Brooklyn at one point and it's not there okay and then it goes back to Virginia and it's back again okay so that's the only diff- thing that changes like, do you think it could be something to do too with like just the idea of it being like more expansive and open than like the confines of a city it's a, it's it's expansive but only visually because it's 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 almost like a contradiction so it's like it's expansive but it's it's not expansive to you experientially there's also something to be said so like the i guess the the anthropomorphic like the scope mm-hmm. aspect of it of being like a traditional film style of like like epics or mm-hmm. westerns or where like you're trying to capture like a wider range of landscape and stuff whereas like there's more immediacy to a flat aspect ratio in a film where mm-hmm. it's like instead of being a rectangle it's a box right? right and so everything's tighter in flat ratio as opposed to scope which is like more broad um i i felt that that cuz it tends to be more right angles i guess is what you mean right. yeah I, I think that that was artistic you know if that was intentionally artistic then i could see that because what was also in that household was that they were very like religiously austere and that was the thing with my grandparents like my grandparents were very heavily in the church so the radio that we heard at home is replaced now by andre crouch and the clouds of joy and like every like gospel record known to man you know like rough side of the mountain volume five <laughs> do you know what i mean and that's what we had that that's what we had to entertain ourselves was like a an organ that none of us knew how to play um and a television that had very limited channels and bibles and you know gospel records the last thing i'll ask you about this is another common criticism that it gets is the idea that it's not really a film that it feels like it's just a bunch of anecdotes or a bunch of sketches loosely knitted together without a really cohesive story. Uh, I think it's a story, but I think that by the time you get to the end, you don't realize the story that you've really been following. It's really a coming-of-age movie. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, Ladybug's transition from being a kid on the stoop to being essentially the matriarch of the family right like a maternal figure right but you're not going to see that because the anecdotes surround her and and 
that's kind of the but the family it's a it's a family of seven so it's you know it's very easy to, to get lost in the myth I, I think that that's you're, I think you're supposed to feel that because she's supposed to emerge and I think that that's what happens is like you see her she's definitely like the central character and then by the time you get to the end she emerges out of all the anecdotes that you see and you know you know that it's it's her so you know, I, you I, know I what really that. bothers me about that criticism too though is it's really it's a really stupid criticism in the sense that like it's a movie about like a like life like the right. lives of these people and life is not like a like we don't have scripted lives like different things have like your life is a series of vignettes you know right. what i mean so like it doesn't make as much sense to have some cut and dried narrative you know, there's, like, an overall narrative arc, but it's the arc of, like, this family's existence, right? right. So, like, it's just, it, like, it's, like, that criticism misses the point of what this movie is. I think that criticism is coming from, <coughs> coming from a person who, who does not relate to the experience that it's telling. And they're bored. And it's like, oh, you know, all these little things. They're not really paying attention, they, and they're not involved. And they're not paying attention to the idea that a lot of those scenes, not all of them, some right. of them are just purely, I think, based off of Lee and his brother and sister helped write, help him write it. Right. Off of some of their experiences that are just coming of age experiences that I think transcend even the race right. of it and stuff like that. But it's like there's some things that are specifically there that, and I think you were hinting at, is like the idea is it's teaching her the lesson that she needs to have for when her mother dies. Right. And it's like they're they're that that's why that sketch right. that they're saying exists is because it's her story of her coming to that point that she can take over and be that matriarch at the age of what, 13, 12, right. 13 right. when her mother dies. It's right. also relevant to the the perspective of like reminiscence, right? Like when you think back on like seminal moments in your life, you don't have the timeline of like i went to mcdonald's and i went to the library between like these things that happened right it's right. like you have yeah. moments that are like like burned in your memory and those moments are not necessarily like straight line Episodic. connects so i mean like yeah. for every for every relevant point i think that this movie like tries to hit on and i think it does it all really effectively and it's a really good movie yeah like, I don't think that a narrative structure, like a straight narrative structure necessarily fits, like, what the movie's trying to do. Right. And I think that it benefits from the fact that it doesn't have that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's such yeah. dumb criticism. Why are you always going to find some I feel like shit? the person that said that will, like, champion Magnolia. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, I would champion Magnolia, <laughs> too. I, 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 I mean, I love Magnolia, not, too, not, but not I mean, I mean, when you, I mean, A, right. like, A, B it, like, you know? Um, Chris, Chris always trying to get you pissed off about something. <laughs> Some nonsense, some asshole say. It could just be that it's really easy to get you pissed off with right. anymore. <laughs> I think it's, I, I, I really like, I loved hearing you talk about like how the scenes in this movie relate to your own personal experience because I feel like nostalgic pangs from watching this movie too. Not because like I had those specific experiences, mm -hmm. but because I think there's like a universe, universality to for being forced to grow up through certain things and mm -hmm. seeing like your parents go through things that maybe you don't quite comprehend the magnitude of as like a kid and mm -hmm. i think that like i mean i, I think D delroy lindo and alfred Woodard are both like amazing actors mm -hmm. and delroy lindo specifically i think one of the more underrated actors of the past like 30 plus years 
just because like he's so good at like a multitude of like different roles and whatever but like i really think that if if you just watch it from the perspective i mean maybe not from like every like childhood but like i think for most of our childhoods like you see things that you know standing up to a bully and dealing with loss and There's a lot. There's a lot of specific specificity. Everybody right. has neighbors that are assholes in some way. Right. It, mm-hmm. There's there's things related to. I mean, the, some of the poverty aspects of it. I certainly right. like live the candles, that. like the candle thing. Sure. The thing with Vic, the Isaiah Washington, that was like a real thing. I, I had seen that. Um, like when I was in, at, at my grandparents' house, there was somebody that wasn't really. He wasn't related to us, but he was. Uh, he especially at that time your na- the neighborhood was your family like you could get disciplined and get touched right like and not yeah. in the pedophilic way but like you could you, you well, could get disciplined too you could get you could get dis- physically disciplined by your neighbor who is no family relation to you at all right and it was completely not only was it it was okay expected. it was expected right so you know like seeing like the one guy um I, was, uh, I think it's it was Vic yeah, I wish. Uh, when he gets Vic, we yeah. get, he gets taken away, you know, you see like their reaction. They don't know how to make sense. They just know that something's wrong, and they didn't. They don't. They don't understand why it feels this way, but they know that something's not right. And like, like you know, there's a lot of uh, it, it deal with a lot of situations where there's no clear cut way to explain how you're supposed to feel. You just that's yeah. what you feel. And I think that's really relevant to childhood, right? And right. to yeah. your formative years is like, how do you reconcile a sense of innocence with like seeing things that are not innocent inherently? You know what I mean? Like, right. how do you grow into a like an adult conscious being? You know, like, like all the things that change you. Like, and I think that's I, I I mean I think he does an amazing job of like representing that right. in the scenes of the movie. I think there's some really subtle stuff, too, that I noted while I was watching it in terms of themes that I, I didn't see even positive reviews talking about is I think there's a definite sense of a community. Like, oh, like, yeah. Absolutely. That you were just talking about. But even when Alfred, when Alfred Wood's character dies and there's a whole sequence with the funeral and trying to get her to come down so they can get there and get in the car, I, I don't know... But what's the character's name with the glasses? The neighbor that always has trash. Oh, it's oh, uh, David. Uh, it's David Patrick Kelly. David, I can't Robin. remember his name. Troy. No, no, that's true. No, that's oh, that's the girl. That's the girl, yeah. right? The uh, the weird guy. He's he, he something um, eyes. They call him like because yeah. he has his glasses. But he's standing outside just to show respect, like with the rest of the neighborhood, right? Despite the conflicts. Right. That they've had, and I, I, I definitely think that that's purposeful. They put him in that shot and make sure that he's standing there looking solemn and right. remorseful. And I, I think that they're trying to show that, like, when the shit goes down, there's still this sense of community that surrounds those people right. despite conflict right. a lot of times. Right. And it's something that I think it's interesting that his very next movie which I'm not going to go on for long about, is Clockers. Right. <coughs> the next one that he makes the next year, which this movie, Crooklyn, ends on the version that you like so much of Return <laughs> to Crooklyn Dodgers. Right. And then Clockers starts on with the, the version that I like so much of Return to Crooklyn Dodgers done by different artists. The right. better version. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yes, what I think is the better version. Right. Um, I think that 
he's definitely making a link in some ways between the past and mm-hmm. the present in those two movies, even to the point of ending on Soul Train in right. Brooklyn. And the first words you get in that song, like in the first few lines, right. references Soul Train, right. references Vietnam Vets, right. which right. have Vic. Right. And I do think there's a definite link between those movies. I would of agree with that. The, the of the sense of community that used to exist, all these things, and now how that community's been destroyed. Right. Through... But, e- but even beyond that, like like taking clockers out of the equation, I know that you like like you love clockers, but isn't that just kind of like the whole point of like including like an entire seventies soundtrack and then Crooklyn, like Crooklyn Dodgers at the right. end of it. To show, like, because, you know, like, the bed neighborhood becomes, like, a place where there's drugs mm. and violence and, you know, it's obviously not that in the 70s. So, like, isn't that, like, to your point where you, you call him a DJ, I think that's a really, like, interesting way to describe it because that's sort of what he's doing is, like, almost, like, remixing what you've just seen into, like, right. blending it into, like, the modern sense. And, I mean, it's a really, for a movie that has, like, an entire, like... And an amazing soundtrack. Like right. that's a fantastic soundtrack of that movie. Um, another reason why that criticism like of the soundtrack right. is so stupid. But like it's it it's it's impressive and it's bold to like include that at the end of a movie where you have nothing modern in the in the music up to mm-hmm. that point. Yeah. Oh also wanted before uh, I wanted to say something to your point with uh David Patrick Kelly. Mm-hmm. What I really I know the scene you're talking about where he to show the sense of community. Mm-hmm. Um it's even echoed by the fact that there was an altercation earlier where the kids did do something to him mm-hmm. and the mother came out and defended them despite the fact that they were lying right. and he knew it. And mm-hmm. despite the fact that he took the brunt of it um, physically, mm-hmm. he still showed respect, you know, and, you know, I thought that that was, I thought that was very demonstrative what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Any last thoughts on Brooklyn that you want no. to share? Okay, so we'll go ahead and move on to another '90s movie, 1998. Frank's pick is He Got Game, starring Denzel Washington, Ray Allen, Rosario Dawson, Mila Jovovich, Jim Brown. Has an 80% from critics, 83% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, did you want to go ahead and explain just a little bit about what the movie's about and what you like about it, Frank? Um, so the movie follows Jake Shuttlesworth, who's incarcerated, it's Denzel Washington's character, for uh, the death of his wife, the murder of his wife, um, and parallels it with the upward trajectory of his son, Jesus Shuttlesworth, who's like the most heavily recruited, like blue chip high school athlete in the nation. Um, Jake is offered this weird conditional parole for a week in order to get his son to sign with Big State University. Um, and so it kind of follows Jake in his week trying to reconcile with his very angry, very estranged son who has no use for him in his life. Um, and it follows him, you know, both of them and both of their paths and culminates with, you know, Jesus siding with the school that his father wanted him to sign with, but his father still ended up ending up like incarcerated and not having any years knocked off his sentence. Um, and a lot of stuff happens in between there, but it's, I, I, I love this movie because I think number one, I, I love basketball and I think the basketball is pretty underrepresented in movies, but I love the fact that like 
I don't know if I consider this a sports movie, but let's like like call it a sports movie, where the majority of sports movies, the focal point is the big game or the big event or like the seminal moment in that player's or team's career where like they overcome the adversary. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of stuff that shows Jesus's like skills and the fact that he's like really a successful player. But that the ultimate, like, the seminal moment is just a pickup game between him and his dad on, you know, like a, like a, whatever, um, project, you know, basketball Mm -hmm. court. And it's not about, like, it goes without saying that Jesus is the best player. Like, it's not about him, like, overcoming some kind of, like, whatever, like, physical adversary in terms of, like, an opposing team or whatever. It's about him overcoming his inability to reconcile you know, one accident like that causes his mother's death with like his hatred for his father and the fact that his father really like has always loved him, even if he doesn't know how to show it. Um, and it does it without being like maudlin or there's no real like clear resolution aside from like, you can, inf- you can infer that Jesus has forgiven his father to some point because he does decide sure. to go to the school. Um, and to speak to that point. So throughout the movie, they show you different ways that forces are trying to pull Jesus to go pro to sign with another school. And they take great detail to show you like what, like, so, um, what's his name? John Turturro's Billy Sunday is a coach of a tech school. And they show you this really like pretty extended scene that kind of pulls you out of like the entire movie where Jesus is at this school and he's being hit on by co-eds and he has like a threesome with two like buxom blondes and, Everyone is telling him that he's the greatest thing. And then they show you this other long segment where he goes to this um, agent's house where the agent's trying to apply him with money and showing him all the things he can get. And ultimately, the school he signs with, they show you nothing about the recruiting of that school, which I think is really profound in the sense that, like, the only thing that would get him to go to that school would be his father asking him to do it. And it's not like doesn't beat you over the head with that symbolism. It doesn't like make it like, oh, well, he's forgiven his father and they've reconciled. It's a very subtle way to show that reconciliation or like at least the path to that reconciliation without being like, I don't know, just incredibly obvious about it. I think it's like, honestly, like really brilliant filmmaking and really brilliant writing in the sense that they do it that way. Um, it's one of my favorite Denzel Washington performances and it might be my favorite. Like, I think it's really nuanced. Um, I think his range between, like, affable, you know, joking, whatever, and just outright vicious, where you can see, like, that, like, a little bit of alcohol changes him and makes him, like, a mean, you know, like, aggressive guy. Um, The scene where he punches uh, Rosario Dawson's, like, secret boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, in the throat. (laughs) Yeah, like, basically, like... Yeah, in the throat and, yeah, like, knocks him, knocks him the fuck out. There, there, there's this hidden menace. Right. That comes out, especially with the alcohol. And it's kind of, like, as a performance, it's kind of what we get later that year, maybe, or the next year, in terms of training. Training day, day sure. And it kind of, like, that's the first time I really see that menace, like, but, like solidified in him a little bit. And his performance in training day is amazing, but it's a very much like a tour de force performance kind of like where he's just like, even though he's got like subtle, like machinations in that movie, like he's very much like in your face and there and like doing these terrible things. Mm -hmm. And in he got game. It's so much more like nuanced to it. And you see like 
loss and sorrow and like pride and like pride in himself and pride in his son and in his kids. And sometimes he's doing both at once at times. Right. I also think it's so we you know we spent like a long time in the beginning talking about like Spike Lee's relevance. I think it's pretty amazing that you know you think about like you like there's kids that live in the inner city and there's only like certain ways they can get out. Like whenever you read stories about like pro athletes or athletes that had the chance to go pro but didn't quite make it, they talk about like this was their ticket out of like, you know, like the projects. This is their ticket out of being like a drug dealer. And you look at the people that are like the satellite people in Jesus's life, like um what's his name? Booger or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, his book. Yeah, Booger. Harper Hill. Like, here's a kid that's, like, a star on the same team as the best player in the country, but, like, he's only got Coney Island left to him once Jesus leaves. Like, that's the end of his time. Right. Like, as, like, a float. Like, maybe he goes with him or whatever, but it's sort of implied that, like, his aunt, his uncle, Booger, like, all those people are going to kind of be left behind to, like, just live in his wake. Lala even mentions it. She says, this is, like you're going to leave me and this is my one chance to get something for myself. And I mean, I think that for like a lot of like athletes, I think that's a pretty common concern. And a lot of people allow themselves to be brought back down by the people that were around them. Like you look at, um, what's his name? Jamal Lewis from the Ravens who like, Mm. like dealt drugs basically because his friends when he was young wanted him to still be a drug dealer. And like, to have this really strong narrative of, you know, the father-son dynamic, Jesus, like, struggling over where he's going to, like, choose to go to school and all these people putting pressure on him, not because they care about him, because they can get something from him. And to do it in, like, really subtle ways, I think is, I don't know, I think it's a beautiful movie and I think it's, um, I don't know, I think it's really, like, profound and, like, maybe the only misstep to me is the whole, like, virtuous horror thing with Mila Jovovich. In the end, like, her getting on the bus and heading back out to the Midwest. Like, that's maybe a little, like, trite, but it still feels earned because they build that relationship between Jake and her throughout the movie. Uh, A common criticism of, is the treatment of women in the movie that they're either saints or whores or both at the same time in some way. And that basically women just aren't represented very well in the movie, any of the women. And, you know, like... Other than the saint... Well, other, well, even the mother is a saint to some degree or has been given that status by Jesus himself. And by Jake. I mean, Jake yeah, right. sure. genuinely, yeah. like... Yeah. Because when you see the flashback scenes, like, a lot of times they are from Jesus' perspective. Mm-hmm. Except for the last one, like, the... Whatever, the... The catalyst of all of it where he ends up killing her. Right. Where it is kind of, like, more both of them in the... In the frame at once. Um... Yeah, I really can't argue against that criticism, but I think it's because it's not about the women. It's about these two men and their individual, like, life arcs that take have taken them in, like, completely different directions. But have they're still intertwined because of their, you know, blood relation. Um, some of my favorite cinematography from Lee in this movie, like, there are some shots that are just, like, absolutely stunning. Um, one shot early on, like, the opening montage of the movie is a bunch of, like, I would assume high school age, like, basketball players, like, practicing in various environments and doing different things. And it ends on, um, you know, these courts that are underneath what I assume is the Brooklyn Bridge. Like, I don't know New York that well. But it's just, there's this incredibly, like, rich, like, blue skyline 
punctuated by tall buildings in the background on the bridge. And then just the little court with these small, like, because it's pulled out in, like, kind of a long shot. These small players just, like, playing under all this grandeur. And it's really, really like a... With that Aaron Copland score mm-hmm. right the top of it. Which, quickly, how do you feel about that? Because that is a criticism of this is the score sends it over the edge according to uh, Rob McDonald, the Apollo movie guy, I mean, I don't, that it's overly sentimental in some ways. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I think that, I, I think it's, it's a really brilliant use in this movie of the public enemy soundtrack with the score and it marries them well where you get the swell of the strings and like the, the grandeur of the score set against what really is like a very small backdrop, right? Like it's a very, very personal story right and where like the score is more like points towards like an epic type like film it really is like epic to the lives of those people sure. i mean like this is right. and it, it they they say it this is like a repeated point like this is the most important decision you're going to make in your life and it's said to him over and over and over again and he has all these different things pulling at him and you know it really it's just that, that that's the beauty of the end of that movie is he makes the right decision because it's what's right for his family even if like he can't admit to himself that he's going to try and help his father because he won't sign the letter of intent you know he still is doing it for his father and they have this really really good reaction chat and i think that lala has some complexity to her i don't think she's either a whore or a saint really i think that she kind of and it's a really good performance from it her is, too, yeah. and I, I think it does like have a lot of humanity to it. And she's—I mean, she obviously she actually loves him, but she also knows that she's not going to go with him. She's not going to get married to him, and she has to have something to live on because what does she have after that? You know, and I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, but the score I think is fantastic, and I think it's used a really great effect. I liked. I thought it was. I thought it was very appropriate. I didn't think it was. I, th- I thought and it, it's kind of based on like what I felt the movie. I just actually watched it, right? Rewatched it uh, yesterday, and I felt like the one of the one of the one of the conflicts or one of the one of the themes is redemption, and I think that that Copeland's piece is very it's very majestic, but not in like a regal sense, like kings and queens, but more like a quest like you know type deal almost almost like rural in a way and like you know amongst the populace like something you know something rising from the populace to go and do something great yeah that's what it felt like to me and combined with the long shot it made sense to me and also coupled with the fact that like lee uses a couple of different like there's a lot of like soft warm light in this movie like a lot of natural light too that he uses Mm -hmm. Um, I think specifically the scene where uh, Jake first comes back and um, is with his daughter and they're in the apartment and it's lit by the window behind him and it's just a soft light on both of them, like juxtaposed against the times where he's in, you know, the hotel room where it's all harsh light and it's neon and it's like incandescent light or like whatever. And the scenes where, you know, it like the natural light, it's just very soft and I think that like you use the term rural, like yeah, I think it's like a like a very pastoral score, mm-hmm. like which you would almost like think about seeing like going over fields or whatever, and right. it's it's a very personal like 
the soundtrack and the score are both very like personal and small and like feel intimate at times, even though they are kind of like expansive and it's kind of weird to call like public enemy, like intimate, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think the music, like both the soundtrack and the score are used to great effect in the movie. So another thing that gets criticized, and this is a large criticism of Spike Lee in a lot of different movies. And I think there is some credence to it in some movies and the idea that he doesn't know how to end movies very well sometimes. Okay. Clockers, which I love and might be my favorite Spike Lee movie, doesn't have a great ending. Like in the last 15 minutes, there's problems with it. It's overdone at times. It's too too direct, too on point, too sentimental. Like there's a lot of issues I have with it. But this one gets criticized for right. an end shot of G, or sorry, um, Jake throwing the basketball over the prison wall and then the basketball coming in the frame in the arena at Big right. State and then uh, Jesus, I guess, catching it. And the common criticism is, one, it doesn't make any sense. Two, it does make some kind of symbolic sense, but it destroys the realistic nature that the film has tried to set up and promote throughout so how just how do you feel about the end of that for yourself and then how do you feel about people criticizing it i i I think it's a fine ending i think it's spike lee again like he's not beating well i don't know maybe a little bit but it's not like he doesn't need someone to come out and say like jesus to say i owe a lot to my father I'm starting to forgive my father, which would be kind of hackneyed. It's more like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just visual symbolism, right? And like, okay, maybe it's a little over the top in that sense, but it's just the coda to, you know, and it's, it's showing you that you don't need an extra 15 minutes that Jake's going to stay in jail and Jesus is going to be successful and they eventually reconcile because it shows you that that passing of the torch happened. And Jesus is finally willing to admit that he owes a lot to his father for pushing him so hard to be the best. And that Jake is also willing to, like, let go of his own past. Because, you know, that was his whole thing, was that he wanted to be a great basketball player. He wanted to live through his son, like, vicariously by making his son the best basketball player. That's the reason why his wife is dead, is because Jesus didn't want to practice anymore and they got an argument about it. So all of those things happened because of Jake's, like, fanatic love for basketball. And he's finally just passing it off to his son. And even though, like, maybe I'm reading too much into that symbolism, like, I think it's pretty appropriate. You're not. I would mm-hmm. go you even further than just that. Jake throwing the ball over the prison wall is him. The man who... Anger is a big part of this relationship. Right. The idea that Jake always denied his anger and it came out in these unexpected ways a lot of times usually against well against his wife the anger comes out and kills her against his son even though like he's trying to help his son he's actually in some ways hurting him his anger and he never comes to grips with his anger his jesus does at a very young age in that scene where he throws the ball over the fence at the basketball court and in some ways, I think it's also representative beyond even all that representative of Jake finally coming to grips in some ways with his anger now being stuck in this prison, even though he was promised to get out 
and throwing that ball and showing right. that anger externally rather than keeping it stuck inside is another way now that he's learned to connect with his son in terms and, of And also letting that anger go because you think about when right. Jesus throws the ball over the, the courtyard fence, the reason that Jake is so mad is because it's his ball. Yeah. Because it's his property and you disrespected his property and how could you do that? And now again, like he's just letting those things like go. And I, I don't know, I mean... I, I, I know that, like, we, we talked about this offline a little bit, where you said that some people think that it means that, like, Jake was actually in the arena and, like... No. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, it's... I don't know. It's I, purely symbolic. Though. I agree with half... I agree, I agree with half of what you were saying with the symbolism. I thought it was a, I thought it was a more than fine ending. Um, I thought it was a great ending, especially for his, for Spike Lee movies, because I do feel that he sometimes... I won't say he doesn't know how to end it, I just feel like it just ends in a way that sometimes is unresolved or trite. Yeah, so right. I will, I will, yes. I will agree with that. But I felt that I felt I felt as one of it's, it was one of the better endings. It was really good. Um, I agree with, with the. Um, I don't agree with what you said about Jesus, and his feelings when he got the ball, or you know what I mean, like his end of the symbolism. I do agree with I do agree with the with Jake's. In fact, I think that him throwing it away, him throwing the ball away, symbolizes all that and like his, um, like complacent renouncement of basketball. Because I felt like he like one of the reasons that he's playing is he's he's keeping his skills up because he has like this innate it, it's his it's his tool of teaching. And it's it, it's it's innate to him, and he has to keep sharp because he has a job to do, despite the fact that he's in prison. And it shows how dedicated he is to his family, you know. Again, despite the fact of like he's in prison for killing his wife right. and all this other stuff. And I feel like he actually walks off the court to throw the ball and puts his own life in jeopardy to do it too. Right, but like he, but I I feel like it's a redemption and renouncement, but like not renouncement as in like I curse you. But more like uh, like willful retirement. Like I don't have to do this anymore. I've done all I can. I don't have to. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to. But I mean, his ultimate goal in like all those things was to make Jesus the best that he could. Use basketball as his tool to get out of. But I think that Tony Island. Right, but I think that after all that said and done, he doesn't know if he's getting out or not. He's blindly throwing it over the wall. I think he's done with basketball. He's done, you know, he saw his son, you know, they met, they actually played. He got to see, you know, he got to see the fruits of his labor kind of, right. you know, and then he does no reason for him to do this. All he needs to do is just exist through his time. And then that be that. Like, I don't, I think that it's him. It's almost, it's like a passing of the torch, but I think it's, I think there's a lot of it of an internal passing as well. I mean, I agree with that. And I think that's all relevant, but I also think that there's a big part to Jesus like finally coming to terms with the other side of that that he owes. I don't I don't I didn't get that. I mean I can kind of see it but I, that's not The only reason I, I say that is because even though there's it's like sort of tense it will not sort of it's tense at the end when he beats Jake in the one on one and like basically like just shows him that like he's so much better than Jake could be. Mm-hmm. That the fact that he goes to big state and, like, that's what he signs with. He doesn't want to give... Like, he's still not ready to give his father the satisfaction of knowing that it's because of him that he's doing it. But it's his way of, like, 
still showing that father son connection that it's not by going to, by going to state right yeah. because that's the school that he was you know the last thing that Denzel really tells him is boy you gotta get that anger out of you and kind of implies I think it's like basically look what happened to me or something you know mm-hmm. and I think you clarified a statement you made earlier it's like basically with the putting oh it's not that it's the path he's on the path to and I think that's the clarification here is I don't think him getting that ball and him going to big state is just like, you know, all's forgiven. Like, it's okay. Right, you 100%. Kill my mom. right. It's the idea that I think now he realizes maybe how deep his anger actually is because you actually look and like there's times where Jesus is certainly not as hands on and stuff like, well, he is one at one point with his no, sister. I, but it's like that anger is getting passed on to jesus and jesus is starting to develop some of that same kind of taunting or you know being harsh again for i think trying to be a good guy and doing it for the right reasons right but some of that anger is coming out of him when he's trying to keep it all inside just like his father did and i think that both of them kind of are at least on the path to healing themselves by the end of that yeah in some way. And, and I think they're still both probably far from healing, if that's possible. But they're, I think they're both more on the path towards it. And Jesus lives through like that interaction. a relatively stress-free life, considering his circumstances, because of his skills. Mm-hmm. And those are all, like, through the context of the movie, all attributed to what his dad, like, put him through. Mm-hmm. when he was young like the events that led to his mother's death were his dad like making him the player that he is so maybe there's a lot of also internal conflict in the sense that it's partially his own fault that his mother's dead like if he wouldn't have been if he wouldn't have quit if he would have been like more complacent if he just would have done what his dad asked him i think it's very interesting psych- psychologically the circumstances that lee set up to get to that point that's the night that she's killed is the night that he throws the ball right. over the fence. Like, that mm-hmm. build up all that. And I think it makes a much more complicated psychological processing for the Jesus character. Um, and it, it never... It, it, of well, maybe residual guilt for things, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then intense hatred for his father because it happens the night that situation yeah. mm-hmm. happens with his father drinking. I don't know. I just know somebody with daddy issues. I'm not sure how you feel. Um, (laughs) But it's like, this is really hard to watch for me at times. And especially having a father who is taunting like that. It was... And the fact that I had to not only sympathize with Jesus, which I was going to naturally sympathize with as the child, Mm -hmm. that I think at times the movie forced me to sympathize with the Jake character. Mm -hmm. Really fuck me up <laughs> in watching it a right. little bit in right. terms of having to come to grips with that idea because it's really e- easy to hate the father yeah i mean i can't speak to that but i i love the fact that denzel's performance is so nuanced that even though he's a complete asshole in a lot of those flashback scenes mm-hmm. you still can sympathize with him as like a man and a human being yeah who just never lived up to his own potential or what he felt was his own potential and is trying to live that through his son and goes about it completely the wrong way and that scene where he's blocking those shots Mm -hmm. is probably the hardest scene for me to watch it's 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 difficult 
you know, I had a father who would sit there. Uh, I, you know this at least, and I mm-hmm. might have told you, but it's like my father used to do shit where he would sit there and say, at five years old, hey, let's arm wrestle. Right. We'd arm wrestle and he'd just slam my hand down on the table. Right. And he would do that like every once in a while up until the time I was 11, 12 years old just right. to just show me who was boss. Right. Yeah. And, that's, and that kind of scene reminds me exactly of that mentality. And with my dad being a drinker and seeing Denzel, who plays drunk so subtly well in that scene mm. as he's like drinking more and, and more. Right. In, in the scene when he punches the kid in the throat, like he goes... He's trying to to do things the right way, and when he fails with Jesus is when he goes and gets that bottle, and immediately, like, the swagger changes, Mm -hmm. the cadence of his voice changes, he gets, like, an almost imperceptible darkness to his face where you can see, like, and if, like, and obviously, like, (laughs) I don't know, I guess too much information, we we, we go to the bars and, like, you, you can see it, like, when someone starts to get drunk where, like, their face sinks, Mm-hmm. And they darken, and you can tell that they're, like, unfocused. And it's just this really, like, brilliant use of his body language and his facial. Because he holds his face up a lot. And he has, like, a very, like, wide-eyed and open, like, countenance, I guess. Like, for most of the movie. And it drops when he's, like, walking down that street with that bottle in his hand. Mm-hmm. And it's... It, it lends, like, a lot of, like, power to the night when he kills his mother because he's drinking in that scene, too. Right. Like, he's outside, you know, with the 40 in the bag. And I don't know. It's just a brilliant performance yeah. by him all around. And, like, really. But, yeah, I told David not to watch it ever. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> I um, I come from more of a background where I have daddy issues, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was an athlete as a kid, so. A lot of that, and my my dad, my dad, <clears throat> his sport was football. So, and I played football, um, despite the fact that he said he didn't want me to feel like I had to, which made me feel like I had to. <laughs> um, but we definitely had it was football and basketball, and um, we definitely he definitely was physical with me, both in a, in an athletic sense and in a non athletic sense. Um, and having, I had a lot of feelings that I, that Jesus, I was able to relate to Jesus's character. Um, I just, in being in that character and having something similar, like I didn't get picked, I didn't decide to play sports in college or anything like that. But like having resolved somewhat the feelings that I've had for my dad, that's why I, it just did to me, it didn't feel like. He, when he, at the end, when he received, when he saw the ball come in to the stadium, I don't feel like his feelings of redemption um, had that kind of spin on it where it's like he realized his dad did all this for him. Right. And I, and that, and that, I, I agree with that. And I don't think he's there yet. I think that's the beauty of the ending is that it's like, I mean, you know, Jake is obviously, like, much moved much past by his own circumstances because he's in jail. Right. Where he has to consider those things. And Jesus has the entire world ahead of him. I think it's just these small things that show that Jesus is on the road where he can get to that point someday. Right. Not that he's like, oh, all is forgiven and I love my father. Right. Because I don't think, it might not, I mean, who knows? Because I the think movie there's ends. a shared under, I think, if anything, it's like the idea that, the ball gets transferred is the idea that there is a shared understanding now between the two of them and at least an acknowledgement 
of something, right? Uh, you know, and some sort of understanding has been reached, even if they're, even if they never see each other again, even if they're never going to talk again, something has happened in both of their lives because of that, that is going to maybe help them move forward in some and way. The other thing too, that I, I love about this movie, and I really like the fact that like, it is at its core, like a movie about a sport, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we're able to have these like pretty complex conversations yeah. about, you know, some not easy like social issues and whatever, but it's all drawn together by the fact that like these people all just love this game. Like they love this and it's part of their life and it like is driven like their lives. And I think it's really, I love the fact that he intercuts like throughout the movie scenes of people just playing basketball Mm -hmm. and not like anyone who's famous or whatever. And that they refer to like, they don't, even though big state and whatever they call the tech school that Billy Sunday, yeah, tech you, even though those schools aren't real, like it's all real coaches. You know, you've got right. um, like the real analysts. You've mm-hmm. got people Dick like Vitale. talking yeah. about it, and the fact that you have a guy who was one of the most highly touted, you know, prospects coming into the NBA, and Ray Allen playing right. the main character, and Ray Allen does a pretty amazing job for somebody who's yes. not an actor. Yeah, absolutely. And six weeks of acting class, right? And just like giving this performance, did you know, did you know it was supposed to be Kobe? No, no that's I funny. Ah, oh, man, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Right. I, I, this, right. this, this might not be my favorite movie then, if that were the case, because <laughs> right. fuck some Kobe Bryant. But, <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be Kobe. Oh, Jesus, that'd be awful. I agree. Yep. I agree. Um, and anyway, and like there great, was another of other people, like I think McGrady, I think Tracy McGrady was, was, yeah, was, was talked about, like uh, it was brought, it was brought to him, and a couple other people, and then Spike Lee just didn't feel a number of other people that brought to him were right that were right. Rookie, that rookies and stuff like that, and then he was at a game and saw Ray Allen and approached him about it, and Ray Allen agreed, but it was yeah, it was like somehow I can't remember what happened. Kobe dropped out though, but it was supposed to be him. But it's amazing, like an amazing performance. Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, I. I, I like a lot of Spike Lee's movies, and I like a lot more than I dislike, I think, by a pretty pretty wide margin. But to me, it's just, it's his most complete story. I think it ends the best. I think it tells a number of, like, minor character stories in really subtle ways. Like, I, I love the interactions between Jesus and his uncle and his aunt. Like, where his aunt mm. is very... Build on. Like, I want, I want what's best for you... You know, we're not here for your money. And the uncle is very much like, well, boy, you got to take care of us. Right. Like, we raised you, you know, after your father died. Even though it's said many times that Jesus basically raised his sister and, like, took responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. And the uncle, like, does whatever he can to try and, like, get in those pockets. And it's just, like, all those small things, I don't know, it it just lends such, like like, a believability and, like, the world feels lived it in real and i don't know i there's so much about the movie that i like and i've seen this movie like maybe like five times Mm -hmm. um it was a movie that i watched the night before it came out after work because there was nothing else that came out that week and we just watched he got game and i was like blown away by it at the time and everybody that i watched it with hated it you know Mm -hmm. and i remember i'm actually surprised by the 80 percent of rotten tomatoes by critics because i don't remember that movie being very well received liked by critics at the time yeah yeah, I don't either. It was I remember right. it wasn't. I remember yeah. when this movie came right. out. It wasn't that high. Right. So it's definitely 
increased in hindsight. Although I think, if I remember correctly, and I probably should start writing this down, I think the top critic score, if you looked at how many people gave it negative reviews, was there was more negative reviews among top critics. If you go to like, yeah. and by top critics, meaning on Rotten Tomatoes, that's always like big newspapers right. and like, magazines. Yeah. Like, they're really well respected critics. Um, I don't know. And again, like I, I love basketball and I mm-hmm. love that it's a movie about basketball, but I love that it's a sports movie that's more about life than it is about the sport. Like I like the fact again, like I said at the beginning, that it's not like, I don't know, like the replacements or something where it's about like them winning the <laughs> right. big game. You know what right. I mean? Like, right. like it's about them living their lives through the context of like what basketball has provided them or even like taken away from them. Mm. And still celebrating the game as being something that's great and like worth worth watching. So I don't know. I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I um no. I I have to say like you know it wasn't. I'd seen it before and it wasn't my favorite Spike Lee, but I appreciated it more watching it yesterday. Like I, I saw a lot more in it. Yeah. Um, the 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 part that was the most poignant for me was was the was the game. Mm-hmm. Where he played his father, yeah. specifically, what I thought was interesting, which which had like a higher symbolism for me, and I could this be, I could be biased because of my background. But what I thought was real, it was very very subtle, but to me, it's what I would have done. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it very it spoke to me very highly. It's like when he so they're playing the game, and it's last point, and they're still jaw jacking. You know, on some like, you know, like as if to say, like, this war will always continue. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and they're still jaw jacking. And then he just goes through his father. Right. Like, to the point where you just, I mean, a forcibly, it was the complete opposite of what had happened an hour earlier or whatever. I mean, just went through him and you cannot stop me, you know, type fashion. Dunks on him. And then goes and picks up the ball and shoves it in his gut. Like, you know, this is what you wanted, you know. And And, and that's especially, like, that is emblematic of what I was talking about, like, of having to feel two different ways at the same time. Mm -hmm. I, it was like a hell yeah type thing Mm -hmm. when he does it, like, for Jesus. But there's also pity for Jake for me a little bit. I, I. I didn't feel. I didn't really. Feel you don't like, feel like. No, I felt like. Well, maybe I'm further along in the healing process than <laughs> you are. <laughs> you should Possibly. throw him a basketball. Right, right, right. Now I felt it was like. Well, here's so here's how I here's how I took it. So I thought him shoving it in his like the way that he he palmed the ball and shoved it in his gut. <laughs> he did. While he's yeah. on his back. Yes. You know, like as if to say, yeah. you know. You know, it was just establishing dominance, but yeah. it didn't feel like a dominance though. It just felt like. But he's he's overcome that demon at that point too. Exactly, like and this so so, and this is what I thought was this is what I took as, as the most important symbolism, is that in that moment, so like he, so he does that, he dunks on him, and then like he shoves the ball in, and they get up, and then Denzel goes to him, like gets up off the ground, and they go eye to eye, and. He says that that make you feel like more like a man now, and I think that in this movie, I feel, and this is partially because of me too. I feel like 
he had such an animosity. He had such a determination. Jesus had such such a determination of not turning into his father that he turned into his father. Right. So he's like by backing up and like shunning himself from the ways that were was his father. He ends up backing right into the parking space that was his father. Right. And I think that it's more of he realizes not only did he get rid of the demons, but he realizes that his victory turns to ashes in his mouth and it really doesn't really, the victory doesn't sate him in the way that he thought it would. And it, it, it like the whole, like that whole scene is amazing in the way that Spike Lee films it because there's some trepidation on Jesus's part. Like he's still kind of afraid of his dad at the beginning of that game, which is why Denzel's able to like get a couple of quick points on him. Mm-hmm. And he like, Jesus has to like talk himself into the idea that I can beat this guy like, these are the last points you're going to get. Like, you're not going to score again. And then does, like, become dominant because he is, like, obviously. I, I, I didn't think he felt, I didn't see trepidation. I took, I saw that as, um, he took him for granted. Like, he, he you know, he, I, I took it as kind of a hubris. Really? Yeah. Because he, you know, he, you know. At that point, everyone's telling him how great he is. He's not taking anything seriously. He says, "You're not no comp. You're no competition to me. Like, who are you?" And then when he realizes, like, his dad is actually, you know, he actually has to play him. He right. actually has to deal with it. To me, it, it, it that was the symbolism in that. It's like I can't slough off this decision. Like this is even though this is even though I. It's like like in an argument. Like even though I know I'm in the right. You know, and not even in an egotistical way or even in a hubris way. I still have to make a decision. I still have to say something. I still have to address this thing that's in front of me. I can't just play this off because I'm already in the boundaries of correctitude, you know. And so I didn't see it as trepidation. I saw it as like, like oh, like I really have to show up. So maybe maybe trepidation is not the right word. But like I, I still think that in that moment, in like those first opening like couple of like seconds of that the game. Mm-hmm. I think there still is, like, something of the little boy that got knocked on his ass by this guy and lost his mother to this guy that still is, like, even though he's verbally given no respect to his father for the entirety of the movie, Mm -hmm. that he still has some maybe, like, primal or subconscious, like, fear of this guy as somebody that could knock him on his ass. I I took it kind of like he, it was... um... Like, he, you know, he just got, he just has to get, he just has to do this to get his out of his hair. You know what I mean? Like, you know, in fact, he was like, cool. Like, you know, you want to put, you want to put your appearance as my father on the line with a basketball game with me? Bring it on. I'll take the shirt off right now. So again, to that point though, like he doesn't have to show up, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have to give it, he doesn't have to lend it any weight. Like he could just say, go back to jail. I'm done with you. Cause he knows that's what the stakes are. But he still shows up because I think that to him, he feels like he owes it to himself to beat him. Like he has to do it because. Well, he didn't know he was going right, to play. He didn't, he didn't know that he was going to play that game. I think that he. I, I think he had an idea, like showing up there, like when he asked him to meet him on the court. And I don't, but I don't know because I don't. I don't think he knew he was going to play that game because he wasn't ready. He he wasn't going to play him anyway. Like not in that way. But as soon as he, as soon as Denzel, as soon as. Jake uh, 
Carrot teased him with the idea of getting him out of his life. He's like, cool. You want to, you want to, you know, you want to roll the dice with me? Like, how dare you? On my court? Like, this is because that's the court that that's his court. Right. You know right. what I mean? So I took it as like hubris. Like, you want this, like, this old time, this guy's been in prison for like, you know, however he's been gone for a decade. Like, so in, in Jesus's mind, his hubris allows him to think that Jake isn't, hasn't played basketball in 10 years. Right. Yeah. At all, and like to think that and it's like a nerve. kid who's like ends up getting headstrong in some ways and overdoes it and, fa- and falls right. on their face. Right. I do think there's that, but to your point, I don't think that you can have hatred for something without a little fear of it. Yeah, and I, I think and, there's, <clears throat> I think there's just way too many times where they show Jesus as a kid getting like bodied by his dad. Mm-hmm. Like, and physically, like, knocked down and, like, and, physically intimidated. And, and Jake does. And verbally. Is the first one to go after him in that game and get a little rough with him, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. in order to try to psych him out. Well, I think that he was, I think that, that because, like, there's people there, too, watching. So, right. I think that, I think that that had a factor in it. Like, yeah. he's, I think he's more embarrassed that he's getting, he's getting not not so much like getting thrashed by his dad, mm. but his dad shooting threes on him. Right? Isn't it only Booger that's there watching? No, other people. No, other people end up watching. Up to the fence and start watching. So he. So that's what I'm like. It's his court. Yeah. You know what I'm when when, his... when they they definitely Lee shows more people watching when they're like five five or something like that. At one right. point, more he shows more people coming up to the fence and watching, which I think adds that pressure a little right. bit to the situation. And I mean, his name is Jesus. This is the second coming. Do you know what right. I mean? Like, he's on my court, my time, my crowd, and this dude just dropped like buckets from like the beyond the three arc. I also love the, the explanation of why he's called Jesus. Like that's one of my favorite yeah. small moments of the movie too. So, but I, you know, I thought that scene was that scene was very. I was like, man, like you know, like that just that really spoke to me. But I felt like that's what it was. Like he got to all he ever wanted to do was dunk on his dad and that I agree with you know but I think that once he did it and went through him that it was so fleeting right well you're you the turn to ashes in his mouth that's a great way to put it like you know? that's exactly right and again like and I love and I, that, I think that's the feeling I was trying to describe to some degree is feeling that myself in the sense that okay yeah I wanted to see him right Overcome but it, his dad, but at the same time, I felt that when it was done, it was like, yeah, it wasn't what I. Yeah, wanted you just to you be. just beat an old like right. convict. Basically. Well, right, and I think that's why he's he he. It's like he he won this battle. He got to shove. He got to shove him back, and then he realized, you know, this didn't feel as good. This right. wasn't as rewarding as well because then, it's, it, it's a fearic victory at that point because right. he's already won by being like the top recruit in the nation and making something of himself and. But none of that. He's not even thinking any of that. I know. That's, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know? And then um, I think that once he becomes, once that, once the the sugar high, I guess, right. albeit fleeting, melts away, he's still left with the situation of I still got to pick a school, you know. And with all this talk about uh, who, like everyone's in his pockets, the one person that's not in his pockets is his sister. And that's and, the and one I, thing that he can do for her is by like. And I think he sees his role. He's like, you know what, you know, all this, all this to the side, I have to pick a school, and the school that, the school that's like all these schools are giving me love and like trying to you know send me in like you know where, what's going to happen with my sister because if if Lala's, you know, 
uh, monologue is correct or, or or has any credence, that means that my sister is kind of in the same boat, especially being younger. Right. So I think that that's why I, like, I feel like the ball coming into him is him realizing his place and be like, you know what? I'm going to do it differently. Like, you know, I don't have, I don't have this albatross anymore. Maybe. And maybe because it's not Jake's ball anymore to the point where like, that's my ball. That's my property. Like now it's right. Solely Jesus's property because Jake is divesting himself. Right. And again, to my point, like it's amazing that we can have this long of a conversation about like some subtle complexities of this movie, which is why something that just crossed my mind is I was sitting here almost wishing there's times I wish we could do video so that we could have just put on the basketball game. <laughs> right. Just so the two of you could, like, talk about what you're seeing in it while that's happening, yeah. like, mm-hmm. on the screen in that 10-minute sequence. Like, I, I, that would be really fun. Yeah, but to, to wrap it up to my, like, yeah. my opinion on why it's my favorite, like, I just think that it's, I think it's one of his most visually interesting movies. Is I think it's one of his most masterful directorial performances. Mm-hmm. And I think it's some of the best, like, s- dialogue narrative and acting in any of his movies like start to finish yeah i mean the um the two cops the two parole officers like these minor roles where they're so they're such assholes and they're so menacing yeah Mm. jim brown's really good yeah yeah Yeah. the like i don't know the fries the there's so much about it Uh it's just i don't know it's it's so good i got he i like the movie more than i initially like saw it like i like it the more i see it i I feel Mm. The one thing that gets on my nerves, and I noticed it with this movie, and I also had watched Red Hook Summer, mm-hmm. and I feel like this is a device that he uses that gets on my that started to visually get on my nerves, is that he doesn't when he does dialogue, there's so many cuts between faces. Like I don't mind the cuts where it's like almost like the scene you know how like if you like watch The Simpsons or Family Guy, someone will say a line and then they go off to the side and do like a whole side scene enacting like giving you a visual of the joke. Right. So I don't I like when he does that when he like there's the part where uh, what's that guy's name? It's the dude that picks him up. Oh yeah, the um, the drug dealer. Like uh, yeah, uh, Dave Guinevere Smith, Smith or something, or something. Like, something yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So like he has his whole speech yeah. and it's interspersed with you know scenes of what he's talking about. But when but there's also parts in the movie where it's just like when you're doing dialogue back and forth and it's whoever's speaking that's who gets the frame. And it's just this constant like flipping, you know, that really gets on my nerves. You see it a lot in Red Hook, uh, Red Hook Summer. He does it's, it in Clockers too. Yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. a pretty common. Yeah. It's just but jaunt, he, he, but he, he does, he does he it does a lot, lot though. And I mean, I really jaunt. feel like I really feel like he kind of developed that, and she's got to have it sort of yeah. like it's that that straight on face. Like I don't, well, I don't mind the, I don't mind the straight on face. Like the, so during um, the drug the dealer's speech back and forth between, between the two between people, two people, that's what gets back and forth rather than either putting them in a then just holding together. the camera and right. But like when he does it and it's not like so he does switching, but he so like context is really important. So like I don't mind it if the switching is not a dialogue. So when, during that guy's speech, there's a part where he's saying. There's a part at the end where people are there. It's talk. They're talking. The whole point of the speech is people are. They don't love you. 
They want things from you. Right. And then at the end, there's a whole set of people like, you know, I need money. You know, I, I love then, you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Right. And there's just like, right. and then at the end, the girl like, you know, I need Similac for my kids. Right. I need, you know, all this stuff. Like that, I was cool with. Yeah, I, I love it when he does that stuff. Right. It's like, like, that's, it, that's I, cool. To me, it actually shows like the actual, it makes you feel the tension in some way. Right. That the scene's trying to get across in his body right. is by cutting to all those and, things. And don't like, you think there's a parallel between that scene with, with the, the drug dealer or whatever and the scene with Lala at the end where she basically confirms everything the drug dealer said? Like the way that they cut it, the way that they film. Because it's Lala and Jesus sitting next to each other on the bench. The bench, right. And it goes back and forth between them, like arguing with each other. Yeah, but he holds it in a medium shot, though. Yeah, he he holds it. They're both in shot. They're both in shot, and he actually keeps swaying. It's brilliant. He he starts swaying back and forth as they're walking, and he actually ends up, I think, over on Jesus's side. Right. With the bench where he like ends up putting his arm up over on the empty side of the bench and basically all those lets the camera rest over there. Right. In the sense of like showing the distance between mm-hmm. the two of them. It's it's a brilliant and sequence. The other the other thing I really like about uh, in addition to that, what I also really like about it is that you play the role of the horizon looking at them. So like they've reached the end of their situation. They're on the brink of breaking up. Mm-hmm. And you're the brink watching them like you know have this tug of war there's actually it was funny it's like when i watched it they i think there's a goof in it he actually starts to laugh at the end of that scene and i don't think it's intentional i Uh think that there was some so like an improv like they're as they're improv in the scene i think that they had a miscue and rosario didn't you know she played it off she goes to kiss him she goes well that's it and she goes she motions to come here and she goes to kiss him and they had a situation where like they just didn't read each yeah. other and they smashed their faces. Uh-huh. I mean, she cleans it up, yeah. but it wasn't clean. And he starts to giggle mm. just a little bit. Mm. And, you know, you catch it if you look for it. But yeah, those, but that, yeah, it's like that scene. Those are the kind of things where it's like I look at him and I see what he's doing as a filmmaker. And again, I don't understand why he's not more respected yeah. because the choices he makes are not always the normal choices for a filmmaker. He makes these just slightly different choices at times. Mm. Like, swinging that camera over like he does in that scene is not something every filmmaker would do, and it works so well to for the emotional resonance of that scene. Right. And it's just instinctual, I think, with him, like, at times, some of that stuff that he does. And I, and somebody that said daring is going to have things that are misses sometimes to people, like, visually. Right, like the the cutting back and forth, it doesn't bother me at all. But just, I can understand. It feels like a strobe. Point. It feels like a strobe. Right. You know? Yeah. And but now, I mean, see, he's I also... think it works really well in something like Clockers and the interrogation scene. He does yeah, it, sure. and because it's trying to build tension. But I think there's times he does it where it's not. Building but in this, tension. he's trying to build like the 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 clutter and clatter and like confusion yeah. in Jesus's mind about all these people that are pulling him in different directions when he's just trying to. Do I, I think what he's doing with sister. the things you didn't mind, I think he's also trying to do that in dialogue. In dialogue it's just, it's just straight dialogue with right. other people. Yeah. Um, like with the coach, when the coach is trying to give him the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just constantly. Well, one thing is people talk so quickly in his movie sometimes. Right. That it, that because you traditionally, a lot of times, if you're doing close up, you move back and forth. Mm-hmm. And 
I think that they talk so quickly sometimes that it forces them to cut more, mm-hmm. and it can cause that effect too, maybe. Um, which, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, that... it's interesting. Like, I'll have to look for it more yeah. in those movies. Okay, any final thoughts mm-hmm. at all? No. I think we got everything. Okay, Aiden, well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, it was, um, it was really good. Okay, so just to let everybody know, next week we'll be coming back with our first comedies list, the mm, 1980s. We did a comedy list. We did, we did rom-coms. Get out of my face. Right. <laughs> um, so next week we'll be back with 1980 Fish Out of Water comedies. Uh, in two weeks we will be doing another Third Man series. And then the week after that we will be doing 1970s crime movies. Mm, wow. And... We're taking a break, and then the final week we'll be back with the B horror movie list for the year 1982. Oh yeah! So, um, more punishment for me. I watched <laughs> right. one of them, and uh, it was um, amazing. Is what so, he wants to tell you. If you please remember, if you have any feedback, get to us at two guys five movies at gmail You can also follow us on our Facebook page. Uh, other than that, thank you for listening. Everybody have a great night. Yeah, thanks. Have, have a good weekend. night. Take care, y'all.